The Talking Points podcast is produced in partnership with C. Michael Gibson and clinicaltrialresults.org. Mike Gibson, Paul Rinker here, and we're talking about his ongoing a never-ending lifetime assessment of CRP and LDL and, you know, how they show us a patient's future risk. Paul, bring us up to date with the field where you are with this. Sure. So thank you, as always, Mike, to have me here on these uh, reviews. Uh, Looking forward to the AHA. At the ACC a few months ago, we presented uh, contemporary data in 31,245 patients who had participated in multinational trials globally. And we reported then that residual inflammatory risk measured by HSCRP was in fact a stronger predictor of future cardiovascular events, recurrent events, cardiovascular death, all-cause mortality, than was LDL cholesterol. Now, remember, that doesn't mean we don't want to lower LDL. Of course, we want to lower LDL. But that paper was in patients who were already taking high-intensity statins and the, one of the implications was, well, after you have a high-intensity statin, we've done a pretty decent job lowering LDL. Yes, we can take it down further with a variety of drugs, but we also could think about maybe we want to attack the inflammatory process, which was actually much more relevant for the poor outcomes of these patients. But what happened this summer was that in June of this year, US FDA, as I think you're well aware, approved the very first anti-inflammatory drug for atherosclerosis, which is actually low-dose colchicine, which is inexpensive. It's very effective, 25, 30% relative risk reductions, which is actually greater relative risk reductions on top of the statin than we get by adding, say, PCSP9 inhibitor. So it really asks, begs the question, what do we do next? And how do we want to think about this? But I want to be very clear, Mike, that this is not an either-or choice. You can do both, right? You can be mm-hmm. very aggressive with LDL lowering and very aggressive with inflammation inhibition. In any event, that's where we were. But as we entered the AHA, we were responding to some questions. Well, what about patients who can't take a stat? What is their CRP and LDL status? So working with the clear outcomes investigators, remember that was the benpidoic acid trial that said that if you were intolerant of one or two statins and therefore could be randomized to bepidoic acid placebo. It was a modest 10, 12% risk reduction. Um, but again, we did the same experiment. So that's now 13,970 contemporary statin intolerant patients. Uh, and we find the exact same thing. Once again, the high sensitivity CRP, increasing quartile of HSCRP was simply a more powerful predictor of maize cardiovascular death, all-cause mortality, than was LDL cholesterol. But now these are not, quote-unquote, falsely lowered LDL levels because they're not taking a stat. Reality, Mike, is this is exactly what we actually published way back in the late 1990s. It's a little odd. It hasn't changed at all. Um, yeah, I remember your famous kind of 3D graph of you know LDL and CRP in three dimensions, right? Right. What's different today is that um, we understand a whole lot more about inflammation biology. We've got proof of principle from our Cantos trial and then from the Doco and Colcott trials that we actually can do something about this. 
I'm running a series of ongoing IL-6 inhibition trials. So I think there's some fundamental messages out there that probably are worth thinking about. The first is, as cardiologists, we can't treat what we don't measure. I would never put someone on LDL-lowering drug without measuring the LDL. I would never put someone on a blood pressure-lowering drug without measuring the blood pressure. If we don't measure HSCRP, we don't measure inflammation, we're just, we're in, we're in the dark. And so I think it just should be universally done, particularly in secondary prevention where we now have drugs that we can get. So that's, that's an easy one. The second is for your patient, you have residual inflammatory risk, and it turns out there's many of them. Mm. Start measuring, you're going to find a lot of them. You know, the FDA has now approved uh, low-dose colchicine at a dose of 0.5 milligrams on a chronic basis. We have two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials that tell us it really works well. Uh, it has finally made the U.S. guidelines, which is great. It was in the European guidelines a couple of years ago. So that's what was that know. secondary prevention? Secondary prevention, not primary prevention. That's a, Mike, that's a great point. The, that, that I believe this drug should be used in high-risk secondary prevention. Interestingly enough, the FDA label actually includes high-risk primary prevention. Really? Wow. Yeah, the FDA label is actually um, exactly the same words as the statin label. Wow. Secondary and high-risk primary. My personal thing is let's get used to using this drug in our high-risk patients, what I kind of call the frequent flyers, you know, the patients who keep coming back for a second and third angioplasty. They've had bypass surgery. A couple of caveats, right? Uh, for people who may not be familiar with colchicine, this is not a drug for everybody, right? It's just, you don't want to prescribe this drug to people with severe chronic kidney disease or severe liver dysfunction. It's metabolized that way. But otherwise, it's really very, very safe, and it's perfectly safe on top of the stat. That's probably the third most important point. Inflammation inhibition and lipid lowering, they're not in conflict with each other. They're completely synergistic. So if you want to put a patient on that... That's what I wanted to ask you. That's what I wanted to ask you, Paul. They're, quote, synergistic, but let's do it mathematically. Is there an interaction term? In other words, does inflammation modify the benefit of, say, something like pempidoic acid? Well, so, so Mike, it's a great question. So in, in the recent data, we showed that pempidoic acid was equally effective at reducing risk across whatever strata of LDL or whatever strata of CRP we picked. So the mm -hmm. drug just worked. And that's true of statins and cells. The interaction issue is never going to be sorted out unless we do like a two-by-two two factorial trial, which will never be done. Mm -hmm. What we do know, though, is just as we know that if I add a PCSK9 inhibitor on top of the statin, uh, I get a bigger risk reduction. It's also true of adding colchicine on top of a full-intensity full statin. So again, the argument here is go ahead and do both. And right. don't worry about what the lipid-lowering drugs are. Use whatever you think is appropriate and consider going ahead and adding that. The third issue really is there are several new agents in development uh, that I think are going to be with us in just a few years. We're running a series of trials with a novel IL-6 inhibitor called Siltabecumab that, again, in theory, delivers a greater CRP reduction than we got in Canto, so maybe mm. produce greater reduction. We have to figure out safety on that one. And I suppose, Mike, it's probably worth reminding everybody this whole discussion about inflammation and atherosclerosis, it should be used first to reinforce pretty basic primordial care messages. I mean, if you've got a patient with an elevated CRP, you know, diet, exercise, smoking cessation, all lower inflammation, they all lower vascular risk. Um, there's been recent data showing that virtually every autoimmune disorder there is, 
not just lupus and psoriasis anymore, but Addison's disease, thyroiditis, psoriasis, uh, Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease. All these disorders have elevated cardiovascular risk. And we think it's because of the same reason. They're all leading to the vascular endothelium. So I, I think that there's a lot going on. Uh, the new data tell us these patients with residual inflammatory risk are very common, both in statin-treated and statin-untreated patients. And I said, I have to say, Mike, if I had my way, the time is well past. We should just have universal CRP screening because we already know. I'll give you an example. As you know, many of us are getting heavily marketed to measure LPPLA, which is a good idea. That was going to be my next question. We talked about LDL, but, you know, what is the relationship between LPPLA and CRP? I mean, I have a markedly elevated LPPLA, two and a half times normal. So I've done some reading about this. Now, if you aren't inflamed... You know, if you're down at less than 0.5 or something, it's not as big of a risk factor. But if boy, if you're both inflamed and have an elevated LPLA, that's quite bad, right? Right. So there's some new, there's some recent papers that have suggested that there's a combination of effects going on with LPLA and CRP. Um, we're actually going to do a very big project on that to try to confirm those data. But I think from a clinician's perspective, you're right. If your CRP is high. You're already at high risk. If your LDL is high, you're going to be at higher risk. And on top of that, your LPLA is high. I think, you know, that'd be pretty aggressive with a variety of preventive therapies. We don't know yet whether LPLA reduction lowers risk. That's what the ongoing LPLA trials will help us to know. But we already know that inflammation inhibition does lower risk. And I would encourage people to think about it. Yeah. Well, what a story. What a long story. Uh, Thanks, Paul, for your thorough explanation or exploration of this linkage between LDL and CRP. I look forward to all you find out. I look forward to some of these new shots on goal with some of these new IL-6 agents. Thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Mike. Take care. Good seeing you.